Some folks don't stop till they find the truth. June's Journey is a roaring 20s murder mystery hidden object game. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android or iOS devices and on PC through Facebook games. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy and your host of Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring an episode from World Affairs, a podcast and radio program co-produced by World Affairs, the nonprofit independent forum for exploring global issues, and the KQED radio station. In just a minute, we'll play you the first part in their recent series on Putin's Russia that starts by looking at the fight for democracy in countries living under Moscow's shadow. But first, I spoke to World Affairs co-host and veteran broadcaster Ray Suarez. Thank you again for, for joining us, Ray, to talk about the World Affairs podcast. What struck me when I was listening to the series is I think that what distinguishes it from other foreign policy and world affairs podcasts is that I think you really come away with a sense of of the grassroots as well of hearing people who are affected by policy issues as well as you know the more kind of 10,000 foot policy thinkers and, and academics and scholars. How important is that for you in storytelling to kind of really hear from the people who are affected by these issues not just those who are making the decisions? It's very much in the DNA of the program. World Affairs is looking at the world and gathers specialists like World Affairs councils do all over America and has a very high-level, policy-heavy discussion. But this radio show and this podcast both want to bring the public back into the game, uh, back into the idea that What the country does in your name in the rest of the world is important to you as an American citizen. What decisions your government makes about doing things in the world is important to you as an American citizen. And as we thought about what it would take to bring people back in, we couldn't make that a high-level policy intellectual conversation. Mm -hmm. So the design of the show from the ground up is to bring the regular news listener, not the foreign policy specialist, back into an interest in, a vital curiosity about what's going on in the rest of the world. In in the episode that we're going to hear today um, on our show, it's the first in your three-part series about Putin's Russia. But it doesn't begin in Putin's Russia. It actually begins in the neighborhood. It begins in Armenia. And that felt like a very deliberate choice uh, on your part. Why was it important to you to begin in the neighborhood and not in Russia itself? Because we're trying to communicate to the audience just how consequential the presence of Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin is not only to people in Moscow, not only to people in the Russian Federation, but to people all over the world. And not only do we go to Armenia and Azerbaijan, but also to Monte Carlo in that series and talk about a flight capital, oligarch money, 
uh, that's coursing through European capitals, you're immersed in this world, so you understand what's going on pretty well. But I think Americans, when they watch the news, they've got a lot on their plate, Mm. their own kitchen table issues, the things happening in their state, in their city, in their county. And a lot of these names, Nagorno-Karabakh, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, Shalikashvili, um, <laughs> Pasignan, just roll over. Anchormen think it's important, but it just kind of rolls over an audience because we never tell you, well, this is why this is important. This is a hook that you can put your own hook into and remain tethered to this story. So we wanted to broaden out the context, tell a, a richer, more interesting story because Putin is also a fascinating guy, in addition to being a consequential man for this era. And as coincidence would have it, one of our young producers, one of the members of the staff, is Armenian, very interested in what's going on back in her family's home country, and had a personal connection to the recent elections there, the drafting of new electoral laws, and brought in a cousin. Uh, raised in Canada, but now back in Armenia, trying to keep democracy alive in a very tough neighborhood. You touched on something there, which I think about a lot, which is how do we translate these incredibly complicated stories from very far away? How do we bring them home for for audiences? Of the arc of your career, you've had some incredible jobs and incredible reporting gigs, which I will get to in, in, in my next question. But what have you learned along the way about how to do that? How do you persuade, as you said, somebody who's thinking about their domestic issues and their kitchen table issues, that what is going on in Armenia or Sudan or Taiwan, how it's, it's relevant and important for their world? The tension in newsrooms is always about trying to understand the audience. We're, we're like a, a room full of psychiatrists trying to analyze people we don't know, we don't see on a regular basis, trying to guess what they're like and what they're interested in. And the tension that I found throughout my career is between the crowd on one side of the newsroom that says, look, if we give people something to shoot for, people want to feel smart. They want to feel engaged. They want to feel included in a sophisticated conversation. They're not stupid, but you got to give them something, got to give them something to chew on that's going to interest them, engage them, even delight them, fascinate them, bring them along. Don't do eat your peas, eat your spinach foreign policy coverage where, well, if you were smart, you'd be interested in this. We smart people are, and we're going to have our own conversation about it over here because that world has always come back to bite this country. When the uh, Iranian students took over the American embassy in Tehran, there was all this well, why do they hate us? Why are they upset at us? Why are they against us? Because there was absolutely no familiarity with American involvement in a part of the world where we had been up to our eyeballs in the affairs of keeping the Shah in power, keeping the Iranian national oil company from being nationalized, all kinds of stuff. Then they say, well, why do they hate us? Why do they dislike us? Not that we should assume that we should be hated, but we should have a little feeling like, well, we have been involved over there and 
there are people who think that we've been a malign force in the history of the country and people who think that we've brought great things. We're living through a very disconnected age right now where people feel like decisions are being made for them far away, where no one asks them what they think and no one wants to know what they think. I think programs like World Affairs are an antidote to a world that happens to you rather than with you. We want a world that happens with you. That was Ray Suarez. And here now is the episode from World Affairs, In Putin's Shadow, the first in a three-part series. You're listening to World Affairs. Enter the Katsurilas. On December 25th, 1991, the Soviet hammer and sickle flag was lowered from the Kremlin for the last time. I am ceasing my activities in the post of president of the USSR. Mikhail Gorbachev resigned, and the tricolor banner of the Russian Republic was raised. It's been about 30 years since the fall of the Soviet Union. And in a lot of post-Soviet countries, residents are still fighting for basic rights. Protesters in places like Belarus are going up against longtime autocratic rulers who are backed by a Russian government that's bent on consolidating power. So I think Russia seeks influence for its own sake. And Putin, in particular, is hell-bent on restoring as much of the power uh, of the Soviet Union as existed when he was born and raised. So this week, we begin a three-part series on Putin's Russia. We're looking at democracy movements that are fighting to survive in Putin's shadow. And we're starting in the South Caucasus, in Armenia, with an Armenian perspective. I have a special guest here to help me out. My name is Elise Manukian, and I'm the associate producer here at World Affairs. So you're the one who brought this story to us. Can you tell us a little bit about Armenia? Like, what's your connection to it? My entire family is from Armenia or culturally Armenian. My mom grew up in Armenia and actually moved to the Bay Area in 1992. And there's this Armenian expression, we are our mountains. And I think that has to do with the fact that when you go outside of the capital city, the entire country is just ringed with these gorgeous stone mountains that are covered in trees and 4,000-year-old churches. And when you look up on a clear day in the spring or in the fall, you'll see a beautiful view of Mount Ararat, which Armenians see as symbolic of their identity and their history. And you really understand why when you realize that Mount Ararat is across the border in neighboring Turkey. I mean, you said this to me once, this is a rough neighborhood. Like, Armenia is bordered by Turkey and Azerbaijan. It is very close to Iran and Russia. I mean, for as an outsider looking in, it's not a great hand. And it's really interesting watching Armenia play it as best it can. Armenian history and so much of Armenia's history has been fighting and dying to live in this tiny little piece of rock. Armenia was caught in the same situation under the Persian Empire, under the Ottoman Empire, and then again under Stalinist Russia. Because of its location, it's been subjected to the whims of empire. You know, when you describe it like that, it seems like the last place that would have a viable, independent, democratic movement. And yet, Armenia has had a remarkable couple of years. 
we were all talking about this as a team and you you were like there's this guy we should really talk to <laughs> should i introduce him so my name is harut manugian i was born and raised in toronto he is a elections expert election reform expert living in yerevan and for the last two years now i've been living in armenia working on electoral reform in a very interesting time in the country's history and your cousin yes and i'm also elise's cousin so armenia has a long history with russia and to fully understand it harut says we have to revisit a painful part of armenia's past in the first world war the armenians within the ottoman empire were subjected to genocide between 1915 and 1917 the ottoman empire killed an estimated 1.5 million Armenians. Some branches of my family are on the Mediterranean coast, but all of those Armenians were marched into what is today the Syrian desert, and most of them didn't make it, and the ones that did ended up being my grandparents uh, and Elise's grandparents. When World War 1 ended, the Ottoman Empire collapsed, and Armenia gained its independence in 1918. but a turkish nationalist movement emerged from the vestiges of the ottoman empire and in 1920 those forces invaded armenia to reclaim territory that had been under ottoman rule kemal ataturk led the nationalist uh, army and formed the modern republic of turkey so his army had marched across the border they had taken over today it's called gumri at the time it was called alexandropol Uh, which is the second largest city in Armenia uh, and they were going to march on uh, Yerevan Yerevan was and still is Armenia's capital and that was the point at which the Armenian government told the Bolsheviks listen here are the reins of the country take the reins and just prevent us from being slaughtered again so the Armenians in order to protect themselves actively invited Russia to come in and basically invade and that that's kind of part of the history of the country. Yeah. Wow. So this was 5 years after the original genocide had started. They knew it was going to come. For the past week, tens of thousands of people have been demonstrating in Soviet Armenia. Armenia eventually regained its independence when the Soviet Union fell in 1991, but it has remained a close ally of Russia's. And there's a reason for this. Survival. Think of it from an Armenian perspective, says Harut. The specter of the genocide is with you at all times. Turkey vehemently denies it committed genocide in the first place, despite overwhelming evidence. And if Turkish forces ever try to massacre Armenians again, well, it sure doesn't look like the United States or Western Europe will do anything to stop them. It took the US over a century to acknowledge the Armenian genocide. President Biden finally did it earlier this year. Today President Biden declaring the massacre of Armenians under the Ottoman Empire a genocide. Although And you can see why it took so long. Turkey is a member of NATO and the US and other western powers have strategically relied on them. Turkey is the second largest army in NATO and no matter what the armenians are going to do if if the turks want to invade they're going to be able to invade and you know the us isn't going to do anything about it the psyche in armenia you know we think about this world of the united nations where this isn't supposed to happen anymore but 
Turkey still denies that the Armenian genocide took place. And the message has been that they got away with it for 100 years. Why not do it again? So Armenia needs a protector. And Russia is the best they've got. Of course, maintaining a close alliance with Russia comes with a few strings attached. And one of them is that Vladimir Putin is not a big fan of democracy. When post-Soviet states like Ukraine, Belarus, and Georgia were electrified by democratic movements, Putin's administration helped brutally repress them in order to preserve Russia's regional influence. For a long time, Armenia didn't have a democratic movement that Russia found particularly threatening. The country was nominally democratic, but also pretty corrupt. Armenia's leaders allowed Putin to expand his influence. Russia controls a lot of Armenia's infrastructure, for example, and its strategic resources. In exchange, Russia backed these leaders' claims to power. Armenia held elections, but the results weren't particularly trustworthy. Harut's an elections expert, so this is really his wheelhouse. Once upon a time, uh, there would actually be, you know, documented cases of ballot box stuffing. Obviously, there was different types of pressure. Maybe if they worked in the public sector, you know, their boss would have said, you better vote the right way. There was issues with vote bribery. So there were documented cases where people would get 20 to $30 in return for their promise to vote. The general environment for these elections was not satisfactory. There are irregularities, obviously, reported by um, many parties around, including by... Uh, then things started to change. Harut was an election observer in Armenia in 2017, and he says that the country had successfully implemented a range of electoral reforms. The people understood that they would get a say, and they started realizing that they were ready for a change. Then in 2018, Armenia's autocratic president pulled a maneuver that was the last straw for a lot of people. At the time, Armenia had a presidential system, and the president's two terms were up. But instead of leaving office like he was supposed to, Harut says the president decided to change Armenia's constitution and its entire system of government. So now Armenia had a parliamentary system. And at the time he said, you know, I promise I'm not going to be the prime minister. I'm doing this because it's a better system. Frankly, I do believe that it's a better system. But his real intention was to stay in power after his two-term limit ended. Even though he said he wouldn't in 2018, that's exactly what he did. And he was, he was actually chosen to be the prime minister by the parliament, but it was too much for the people to take. It started off quite small, actually, but the protests started building day by day. It had a general strike and no one was going to work and all the roads were blocked. Uh, and after enough days of what came to be known as the Velvet Revolution. Tens of thousands of anti-government protesters marched for days to demand his resignation. On April 23rd, 2018, he said, I resign. And one of the leaders of the protests, who was also a member of parliament, an opposition member, ended up uh, replacing him as the next prime minister. Armenia's acting prime minister, Nikol Pashinyan, has won a convincing victory in Sunday's snap parliamentary election. His name is Nikol Pashinyan. In 2018, there was a big, like, post-Velvet Revolution euphoria, and Pashinyan's government came in with 70% of the vote, which 
usually doesn't happen in a proportional representation system. So Armenia has this peaceful, radically democratic revolution. Its new prime minister, Nikol Pashinyan, is a former protest leader who used to be a journalist and is promising electoral reform. And it's not clear how Russia, the military ally Armenia depends on, will react to any of this. Then, a few weeks after he's elected prime minister, Pashinyan meets with Putin and announces he wants to strengthen Armenian-Russian relations. You know, all of these color revolutions, whether it was in Georgia or Ukraine, these have always taken on an anti-Russian character. And so when the Velvet Revolution happened in Armenia, the new government was very careful to say this doesn't have any geopolitical repercussions. Russia's reaction to Armenia's Velvet Revolution was pretty muted at the time. So Pashinyan's government started to implement its democratic reforms. The first thing we're going to do is change the electoral system. And I was like, oh, I just learned how to do that. (laughs) Harut had just gotten his master's degree at Harvard, where he specialized in electoral reform. And so I've been here for since that time, for the last two years. And it's it's been an interesting ride, that's for sure. I got here in June 2019, and that's when things started kicking into high gear with changing the law on political parties, changing the electoral code. Unfortunately, that got cut short. It got cut short in September 2020 by a brief but brutal war with yet another of Armenia's neighbors, Azerbaijan. Tucked in the mountains between Armenia and Azerbaijan, there's a region called Nagorno-Karabakh. Internationally, it's recognized as part of Azerbaijan, but it's home to a lot of ethnic Armenians. And it's been a source of tension between Muslim Azerbaijanis and Christian Armenians for centuries. When communism fell in the 1990s, Harut says Nagorno-Karabakh fought for its independence. They wanted to be independent of Azerbaijan. And so that led to a a brutal war in the early 1990s that was never fully resolved. Between 20 and 30,000 people died in the conflict. Heavy fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan has continued for another day in the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh. Then, in September 2020, fighting flared up again. In Azerbaijan, they were having difficulties with a low oil price. Their leader was starting to get stale. So unfortunately, when things like that happen, sometimes people decide to create war. Armenia intervened in the war pretty quickly to defend its own territorial holdings and Nagorno-Karabakh's ethnic Armenian communities. So they were involved there to make sure that any attacks could be repressed. Whereas previous flare-ups had sometimes lasted for a couple days, this one went for six weeks straight. Russia got involved too. And this is where things get even trickier. Because while Russia is an ally of Armenia's, it's also an ally of Azerbaijan. And Harut says that Russia kind of played both sides here. So these situations really suit Russia's position, because so long as the conflict is unresolved, then both sides, both Azerbaijan and Armenia, would look to Russia to kind of gain their favor. And Russia can kind of pressure each one, pitting them against the other. So when Armenia gets out of hand, you know, they start selling weapons to 
Azerbaijan. And when they want to balance it back again, they start handing weapons to Armenia. And so as long as there is a conflict, both sides need to be in Moscow's and Putin's good books. After six weeks of fighting, Putin pushed through a peace agreement that consolidated Russia's position as a regional power broker. And it was also pretty bad for Armenia. Azerbaijan got to keep a lot of the territory it had taken over, and Armenia had to give up additional territory on top of that. The capital of Nagorno-Karabakh stayed under Armenian control, and Russia sent in peacekeepers to secure it. Armenia and Azerbaijan have both accused each other of ethnic cleansing and ethnic hatred during this conflict. They've both filed claims with the International Court of Justice at The Hague. And if that specter of ethnic cleansing weren't enough for Armenians, guess which country also sent in troops to support Azerbaijan? Turkey deployed its uh, its state-of-the-art drone technology uh, and also recruited uh, some mercenaries from Syria uh, to fight in this war. That's right. You know that old fear that Turkey's military will get involved in Armenian affairs again? It had just happened, and Armenia's protector Russia hadn't really helped. And this became a a big issue for the legitimacy of the Pashinyan government in Armenia. One of the basic roles uh, for government is to keep the people secure, and people saw that that wasn't necessarily the case anymore. And so then the street protests started against Pashinyan, led by mostly people affiliated with the previous government and calling for his resignation. Members of Armenia's opposition gathered in the capital Yerevan on Monday to renew their calls for Prime Minister Niko Pashinyan to resign. And this went on for a number of months until finally Pashinyan said, fine, we'll have an early election and this will be our way out of this political crisis. It wasn't just that Pashinyan's opposition blamed him for Armenia's loss of territory in the war. According to Harut, there was this prevailing narrative that Armenia's democratic movement had alienated Russia. So, in order to keep Russia happy and maintain Armenia's security, Armenian voters had to give it up. This narrative of of democracy for security kind of comes from the fact that, you know, if you push this democracy theme too much, these guarantors of our security, who are the Russians, they're going to get upset and they're not going to lift a finger when the Turks or the Azerbaijanis come after us. Europe and uh, the U.S. are not going to lift a finger when the bullets are flying over our heads. So we need to keep the Russians happy. And if that means, you know, not, not pushing a democratic agenda, well, then maybe that's the price we need to pay to stay alive. And that I, you know, I, I've lived here for the last two years, but I can't imagine being stuck in a situation where these are the types of choices that you have to make. And I really feel for for the people here. The most formidable opposition candidate running against Pashinyan was a former president of Armenia who was known for being corrupt, authoritarian, and pro-Russian. He has like a, a friendship with Putin. So you could say that, you know, you could say he's a more pro-Russia candidate. So that election finally happened on June 20th. And Pashinyan won. He had less than 50% in the capital, 
And outside the capital, he had much more. He was in the 60% range, and in some areas, like 80%. Pashinyan even won the majority of the vote in border villages, which had been directly impacted by the war with Azerbaijan. And even in those cities, uh, Pashinyan got more votes. And so, you know, what can we read into that? That's a... I, I don't want to speak for those voters, but... You know, one side of it might be that at least they had some kind of a deal at this point. Even though it was a very bitter pill for Armenia to swallow, at least the fighting had stopped. Pashinyan was also popular for a lot of other reasons. A lot of his reforms had gone towards, uh, you know, fixing roads in rural areas that had been living with unpaved roads for 30 years. And I think the most important thing to read into it is that you, you can't stay in your ivory tower and you need to go out to the streets. Pashinyan's team, if there's one thing that they do well, it's uh, they tour the country, they shake the hands of the villagers, uh, they say that they're going to pave the road and, and the trucks show up. For the first time, they kind of got a, a feeling that someone was cared about their daily struggles, and that ended up playing very well when the election time came around. You'd think that Putin would be pretty upset by this turn of events. A democratic reformer like Pashinyan winning a landslide victory against one of Putin's personal friends. But Harut says that Russia didn't actually have a favorite candidate here. Frankly, from the Russian perspective, they won no matter what. Because with Pashinyan, they've gotten this, you know, the person who came in on this democratic public protest change of government, uh, all of a sudden they've kind of, you know, what word should I use, castrated him to, to say like, listen, I'm going to show you who's boss. You know, so Pashinyan is still in power and Pashinyan now fully does not doubt at all that if Russia tells him to do something and that there's going to be consequences if he doesn't do it, now he's seen it firsthand. And that's also a win for Russia. Even with Russia's influence, Harut says Armenia has managed to strike this delicate balance to preserve its young democracy. I think that Armenians culturally identify themselves more, more with the West than the East, and that has to do with you know, historical ties during the Crusades as a majority Christian country. So I think that the Armenians want to emulate sort of a European society deep down. Uh, I think that they want to live in a place with, you know, personal freedoms and personal agency, uh, as, as most of the world does, I think. I, th I think that would be fair to say. Armenia's big neighbors are Turkey, Iran, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. If you ask any of the people in those countries as well, I think that they would also say that they want more democracy and more personal freedom. So in Armenia, at least the government has, at this point, uh, sort of been more open to it and uh, willing to engage in that process more so. And my hope is that that will prevail, not just in Armenia, but in the neighbors, because an authoritarian, even beyond your borders, is still a threat to you. We'll be right back after this break. 
Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth with an open mind. So as we heard from Harut Manoogian, the 2020 war in Nagorno-Karabakh gave Russia greater influence. To understand just how far that influence reaches, Ray Suarez sat down with someone who has spent a lot of time in the region. When I was in Nagorno-Karabakh the last time, which is the last conflict that I covered, when we were staying in this hotel and the air raid sirens would go off. And so I would sleep fully clothed in my boots and have to run down four flights of steps to get into the cellar of the hotel that we were in. And there were about 40 or 50 people huddled in there from around the neighborhood, many of them elderly, many of them clearly sick with something. And you got to remember, this was like right at the peak of the pandemic. And I caught myself thinking, man, I've got to choose between an artillery strike and getting the biggest viral load of COVID imaginable in this basement after, you know, hiding out here for several hours. I'm like, why am I putting myself through this? I don't know, maybe I'm just too old for this stuff now. Simon Ostrovsky isn't that old yet. But after almost two decades covering the former Soviet Union, you can understand why he might feel tired. He's been kidnapped in Ukraine. Oh, I'd like to just begin here with this, with this American journalist, um, Simon Ostrovsky. Tell me, uh, what are the efforts uh, being made to, to free him? What was Won an Emmy for his coverage of Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2013. And last year, he covered the Nagorno-Karabakh war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Special correspondent Simon Ostrovsky traveled to the region again for the news hour. So this is what victory looks like. I asked him how Russia set the table for this conflict and how it continues to benefit from ongoing tensions and military flare-ups. After the dissolution of the Soviet Union, a lot of the ethnic, national, linguistic rights issues that had been frozen in time by the Soviet Union erupted quite spectacularly. And these were things that were never allowed to be talked about while the communists were in power. I'm talking about local languages and, of course, local religions, which were suppressed during the Soviet period. And so when Azerbaijan and Armenia and Georgia, for that matter, became independent countries, what happened was their borders, which were set during the Soviet period, didn't exactly match the ethnic boundaries. And so that was a ticking time bomb that had been put in place there by Stalin many, many years earlier. As soon as those countries became independent, Armenians who were left on the Azerbaijani side of the border wanted rights to self-determination. And uh, Azerbaijanis who were living in Armenia essentially had to flee that country when war broke out between the two ethnic groups, now nation states. 
And that was a pattern that was repeated all across the Soviet space after the breakup of the Soviet Union. But one of the biggest and most costly wars in terms of life, lost life, was the Nagorno-Karabakh War, which sort of spanned the era up until 1994. Some 30,000 people were killed, maybe 500,000 to a million people ended up displaced. The lines of the nation states didn't matter during the Soviet period because both Armenia and Azerbaijan were part of one country. And so one village could be Azerbaijani, another village could be Armenian. You know, there were all these ethnic groups mixed in there and cohabited when there was a power that oversaw their relations. And as soon as that power disappeared, there was also a power vacuum and people started clamoring for control. It was a lot like the situation that we had in the 1990s in the Balkans. It was similar up until the point where you start talking about ethnic cleansing, because although ethnic cleansing did happen in Armenia and Azerbaijan in the sense that the rival ethnicities had to leave the polities that they had ended up in, there weren't massacres or genocides on the scale of anything that we saw in the Balkan Wars. But what you did get were these territories that were controlled by either ethnic group that were completely purified of the opposite ethnic group. So Armenia became a country where no Azerbaijanis lived and Nagorno-Karabakh became a territory attached to Armenia where no Azerbaijanis lived. And Azerbaijan, for the most part, became a country with no Armenians, although cities like Sumgayi and Baku and Ganja, before the collapse of the Soviet Union in Azerbaijan, had massive Armenian populations. That were all pressured to move away or relocate or disappear? Yeah, in the context of the war, it became very dangerous for Armenians to live in uh, territory controlled by Azerbaijan. And by the same token, it became very dangerous for Azerbaijanis living in Armenian-controlled areas to remain there. And so you had families essentially over telephone and telegraph arranging exchanges of apartments, leaving everything behind where they'd live for generations to move to a country several hundred miles away from where they grew up. And you essentially ended up with a situation where both countries were pretty much ethnically homogenous, especially in the case of Armenia. I mean, although very, very few Armenians remained in Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan has several other ethnic minorities that did remain because they weren't party to the conflict. But in terms of Armenians, almost every single one had to leave. You do hear the Azerbaijani regime quoting this number of 30,000 Armenians living in peace in Azerbaijan as sort of a, a fig leaf, but we don't know that those figures are actually accurate, and you don't see any kind of representation of Armenian life in day-to-day -day Azerbaijan. I lived there for three years, and there's an Armenian church right in the center of Baku, the capital. And as far as I know, there's never been a church service held there. And that would be a pretty good indicator of whether there are Armenians left. And if Armenians are indeed left in Azerbaijan, then they're certainly not allowed to practice their culture and faith. So here we are looking at a small region that's a crazy quilt, ethnically, politically, a complicated place, but adjacent are two big, rich, powerful countries, Russia and Turkey. As these little places picked sides and picked champions, 
who ended up with who as friends? So it's a very, very complicated region with a lot of vying alliances. It's a lot like the Middle East, which it's right next to. I think the alliances, they're kind of defy comprehension because a lot of people would look at Azerbaijan and say, well, this is a Muslim country and so they're probably going to be aligned with Iran and Armenia is a Christian country and therefore, you know, their alliances would fit that pattern. But you look at Azerbaijan and actually their relations with Iran are, are terribly fraught. And in the latest war, it emerged that one of their biggest partners in terms of military cooperation wasn't just Turkey, which really had a big hand in the last war, but actually Israel. Israel supplied to Azerbaijan tons and tons of these so-called loitering munitions, which are essentially suicide drones, which are small and cheap to manufacture and really helped the Azerbaijanis come out on top in the latest Nagorno-Karabakh war. And in terms of Turkey, they also supplied drones to Azerbaijan and also military officers to help lead Azerbaijani troops during the war. The uh, drones that you were talking about, these attack drones, uh, you've been under, well, under their watchful eye. What's that like? What can they do? It was absolutely terrifying. I spent uh, 10 days in Nagorno-Karabakh during the active phase of fighting on the ethnic Armenian side of the front lines. It's really hard to describe how terrifying it is when the city is being shelled. All you can think about is how do I get low? How do I get safe? Even just hearing the sound of the drones circling overhead, it's like a lawnmower in the sky, is a chilling feeling. And the first, the very first thing you do when you hear one of those things, you don't know whether it's an attack drone or an observation drone, you're just terrified and you run and find shelter as quickly as you can. Just as we begin our interview, we hear an attack drone circling overhead. Several countries are supplying drones to Azerbaijan, among them Turkey and Israel. And so Azerbaijan has sort of really tied itself in with Turkey, with Israel, as emerged during the last war. But the ceasefire that actually ended up being brokered between the two countries, that was managed by Russia. And as a result of Russia's brokering of the ceasefire, it actually gained a new foothold in the region. Some 2,000 Russian peacekeepers are now patrolling the areas of Nagorno-Karabakh that remain under ethnic Armenian control. Uh, Azerbaijan won a considerable chunk of territory, but they didn't take everything. And in the bits where Azerbaijanis still don't have control in Nagorno-Karabakh, that's where the Russians are. And the Russians obviously have a recent historical relationship with both countries as the imperial power that used to run both of them. And so they also have relationships and common languages with both the Armenians and Azerbaijanis, where Russian is still widely known, if not spoken. And Putin used his position of influence in both countries in order to impose this ceasefire agreement. I won't call it a peace settlement, because it's still a tinderbox that could blow up at any time. But if we're looking for a sort of geostrategic power that won out 
In this conflict in 2020, it was probably the Russians that gained the most advantage there because no matter what decisions have to be made between Azerbaijan and Armenia in the future, Russia is always going to play a role there in brokering those decisions. Another thing that's important to remember is that this represents the first time since the end of the Soviet Union that Russia has had troops in all three former Soviet republics of the South Caucasus region. I mean, in the 2008 war that we saw in Georgia, Russia ended up occupying about a quarter of that country's territory and bringing its troops to Georgia. Russia has a long-standing agreement with Armenia and has had a military base there for a long time, and they're actually in a sort of military alliance that kind of tries to mirror the NATO alliance. And so Russia has had troops in Armenia for quite some time. But the one place that it didn't have troops in was Azerbaijan. Now with these peacekeepers, that's actually changed. But the interesting thing is Turkey has also sort of emerged in, in a nascent stage as a major power player in the Caucasus. I mean, not major at this time right now because they have around 70 so-called military monitors stationed in Azerbaijan. They fly drones around the region and ostensibly they're there to monitor that the ceasefire agreement is being held in place so that it's not just the Russians who are viewed as aligned with Armenia monitoring the situation. So that's a first for Turkey as well, you know, a country that's a part of NATO but has not had any influence for over a century in the South Caucasus. So these might be baby steps for Turkey, but the way the Turks want to present it is this is the beginning of a long road where they're going to link Azerbaijan to the Turkic world and to the other Turkic countries of Central Asia. All of these countries, before the dissolution of the Soviet Union, had active diasporic political movements, people on the outside who were asserting culturally and linguistically and religiously the right of these people to uh, run their own show. They were very assertive in the early days of the breakup of the Soviet Union about their rights to nationhood. Is it interesting to watch how they gingerly try to put together a post-Soviet relationship with Russia? I think the interesting thing that I have heard from people on both sides of the ceasefire line in Armenia and Azerbaijan is that they feel that they've lost some of the sovereignty that they gained since the breakup of the Soviet Union as a result of Russia's return to the scene so forcefully. Azerbaijan is obviously a clear winner in this conflict because they won control of a huge chunk of territory in the Caucasus Mountains. But on, at the same time, they had Russian troops come back to their internationally recognized territory for the very first time since the breakup of the Soviet Union. And so I heard Azerbaijanis talking about, well, we traded an Armenian occupation, a much smaller power, for a Russian occupation. And, you know, technically that's not true because those troops aren't occupying forces. They're peacekeepers there. But it's telling that a lot of people in Azerbaijan view it that way. And the same goes for Armenia. The interesting thing there is that Nikol Pashinyan, the Armenian prime minister, when he came to power in 2018 in this uh, people power revolt that overthrew the previous regime, he became a big sort of ideological problem for Putin because for Putin's worldview, any leader that comes to power on the back of a popular revolt, that's 
anathema to his way of doing government, which is the sort of managed democracy, authoritarian doctrine that he puts in place. And we've seen time and time again when a regime that is aligned with Russia is either overthrown or threatened to be overthrown, then Putin moves in with the military. We saw that in Syria with the Assad regime when it faced a potential defeat um, at the hands of various uh, rebel groups. Russia came in to support him. And so suddenly we have Pashinyan here, who Putin really didn't like. And the war created an opportunity for him to bring Pashinyan back into line. And what we've seen is the rhetoric coming out of the Armenian government since the end of the war, when the Armenians realized that they rely completely and totally on the Russians, has been much more friendly to Moscow. We've seen agreements to open more Russian language schools. We've seen more business agreements. Most recently, uh, Russia agreed to invest uh, around a billion dollars in the country, of course, mostly to finance projects that will be conducted by Russian companies. But we're seeing like sort of this re-engagement with Russia that they didn't have in the immediate aftermath of Nikol Pashinyan coming to power. He's really changed his tune in terms of Russia and its presence in Armenia. What role does oil play in all of this? The Caucasus are essentially an energy corridor between the Caspian Sea, Central Asia, and Europe. There is the Baku Tbilisi Jehan pipeline, which was the first major oil infrastructure project that channels oil from the Caspian Sea to Turkey, and then from Turkey can go to the rest of the world. This was built with American backing for the reason that Americans and Westerners generally felt that countries of the former Soviet Union should have an independent export routes for their oil and gas that avoided Russia so that it would be easier for them to get out from under Russia's thumb. What we've seen happen in the years since then is that Russia has tried to resist newer infrastructure projects that would continue to take these countries out of its uh, sphere of influence. And the fact that Russia brokered the ceasefire in Nagorno-Karabakh has actually made it possible for Russia to write itself into the agreement in the sense that part of the agreement is for a transport corridor that would cross Armenia from Azerbaijan and this road would bisect Armenia, allow Azerbaijani goods and Turkish goods to go in both directions through Armenian territory. There's a provision there that says that Russia is supposed to provide security for this transport corridor. So that puts Russia right at the center of anything that's going to happen in the, in the Caucasus in the future. In the Yeltsin years, before his departure from the scene and the strongman arrival of Putin, the United States, in particular the West in general, uh, was putting out feelers in that part of the world, uh, cultivating and courting uh, new political elements in places like Ukraine, in the three Baltic countries, and in Georgia and Armenia. I mean, the, the presidents of those young republics visited Washington pretty routinely in the 1990s, in the early OOs. And then it seems like America lost its juice in that part of the world. What happened? I think, you know, America's pullback from international affairs is about much more than just the Caucasus region. And I think it started during the Obama era when Americans were getting so sick and tired of the adventures in Iraq and Afghanistan that had 
been embarked upon during the Bush administration. And so I think, you know, with Obama coming, winning the election in large part due to Americans' fatigue with international affairs and international wars, this pullback from anything that was viewed as messy began and continued into the Trump era, where essentially this became a region that the American administration just didn't want to be involved in whatsoever. You know, we were thinking about other things at the end of last year. Uh, we had the election here to contend with, the coronavirus pandemic. So this became an opportunity for Russia. Russia had free hand, essentially, uh, without interference from any other powers to step in and to become the architect of a deal that ended up benefiting it. And the United States was nowhere to be found. What impact will that have on the formation of democratic institutions, stable longitudinal governance in a whole array of countries across Central Asia? I mean, if you're a Kazakh democratic activist, if you're an Uzbek free speech advocate, if you're in Belarus and wondering whether you're going to get any help from outside to extricate yourself from Lukashenko land, what is this... Um, this lack of interest in the United States, what does it mean for the prospects in the coming years? I think authoritarianism is definitely on the march in Eastern Europe and in the former Soviet Union. And America's relative pullback from the region and from international affairs more generally is going to mean that, you know, the State Department and the White House, they might pay lip service to democratic principles and to opposition politicians in these various regions, but they're not going to be there for them um, when they need them the most. And we've already seen the Biden administration distancing itself, uh, even in a place as fraught and as critical as Ukraine, where he was the special envoy for so many years under the Obama administration. And so I think that a lot of human rights activists and opposition politicians and civil society members living in that part of the world and trying to improve their countries are starting to realize that they're on their own and they have to start making alliances with new people, new powers, or simply just to rely on themselves. Or the sadder alternative here is give up the fight completely. And, you know, we've seen rollbacks happen in Belarus, you know, which was a country that was authoritarian before the pandemic, but I think now can be described as totalitarian. And Central Asia is not heading in a democratic direction either. So I think that we're in a period of history where a lot of countries are more inwardly focused and a lot of countries that weren't, such as Russia, are now trying to expand their influence. I think Russia seeks influence for its own sake and Putin in particular is hellbent on restoring as much of the power of the Soviet Union as existed when he was born and raised. Well, Simon Ostrovsky, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you so much, Ray. You're listening to World Affairs, produced in partnership with KQED. I'm Teresa Katsourilis. 
Imagine growing up in the early days of post-Soviet freedom, but still living under an authoritarian government. A generation has come of age in the internet era of free-flowing information, but their communities, media, and national politics are still constrained by ancient stereotypes and ethnic and religious divisions. A government official makes a statement against Armenia, for instance. You know, no one questions it. Everyone's kind of like, yeah, go. Yeah, we support you. Yeah, we need to show them who the boss is. For Arzu Gebula, building bridges of understanding has become part of her life's work. I am originally from Azerbaijan. I've been based in Turkey since 2010. I'm a journalist. I cover Azerbaijan predominantly, but I also focus on the region. And when I say region, I mean I write on Georgia, I write on Armenia, and sometimes on Turkey. Arzu also started a website focused on internet freedom and authoritarian technology. More than a decade ago, Arzu helped direct a program at the Imagine Center for Conflict Transformation. They brought Azerbaijanis and Armenians together in the same room to talk face-to-face. The idea was to discuss the history of the conflict, discuss the history of the relations between the two countries. And then once these aspects were covered, to talk about what can people like them do to keep the dialogue going, to keep their relationship going, and to show that, you know, the two communities can coexist together. And it was really interesting to see how Azerbaijani and Armenian participants would discuss history. You know, they would come up with a timeline because basically the first day of the dialogue is the assignment given to them is to come up with 10 or 11 important historical dates that they think had an impact on the history of the conflict and of the relations. And so they would come up with these dates and then we would facilitate that discussion. And then we would bring the timeline together and list it in chronological order and have the groups explain why that specific date or event made it to the list. And the whole point of that conversation was to make sure that people understand where they're coming from. Not necessarily agree, because that was kind of like one of the things that we would stick on the floor when this was discussed was understanding doesn't equal agreeing. Like we're not, you know, trying to convince anyone in anything. We're just trying to make sure that there is some kind of conversation going. And so we kept working with these groups and then we decided that maybe we should expand and not just work with students, but also bring in sort of larger civil society representatives. So we started working with people from the NGOs. And then eventually my last dialogue that I facilitated was with journalists from Armenia and Azerbaijan because we wanted to focus on conflict-sensitive journalism and conflict-sensitive reporting. You know, presenting the conflict using the language that's not aggressive, that's not violent. I mean, you present the facts of both sides. And instead of triggering and instead of instilling more more hatred or negative emotions, you simply cover what's happening. So just to give an example, like during the war, you know, September 27 is when the war started and it lasted for 44 days. So every day, you know, there were reports of people getting killed, civilians, military, bombing of civilian areas. Tit for tat shelling today in the Karabakh city of Stepanakert. 27 people were killed in fighting on Monday, bringing its total number of casualties to 58. Now this comes at the back of four other people who died on Tuesday evening, including an infant. 21 civilians and wounding dozens more in strikes close to the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh. 
when you report on bombing of civilian areas, for instance, right, the objective is to report on all casualties. You don't just report on what the enemy has done to you. You also report on what you've instilled on the enemy, quote unquote. And what I was seeing more often was counting one side's losses as if, you know, you dehumanize the other side and conflict sensitive journalism is the opposite. You have to humanize it and you have to make sure that you give credit and you talk about both sides of the conflict. For Arzu, last year's war between Azerbaijan and Armenia was heartbreaking on so many levels. I mean, the war itself was devastating for both sides, obviously, but as a journalist, I saw how little of conflict-sensitive journalism actually exists in both countries. And as an Azerbaijani, I was looking at my colleagues who were covering the war and how much of the government narrative, especially what the Ministry of Defense was posting or, you know, the statements that were coming in from the government, how much of that narrative would make into the stories. You know, the media outlets, even the ones that we consider independent or opposition, they would take the titles from the statements that were coming in from the Ministry of Defense and just put them on top of the story. And then we'll be like, you know, we destroyed this many enemies today, or like this many people were killed as a result of successful operation carried out by our army. You know, this kind of language that isn't something that you should be seeing when you're covering war as a journalist. So, it was a really difficult time to try to be an independent journalist covering a war that you've basically grew up with. You know, I was born in 1983, so my whole kind of young and adult life, I have been hearing about the war. I've been, you know, I have friends who are internally displaced people who are my age now who talked about the war. Or I grew up on stories of my parents who had neighbors from Armenia prior to war. And being on the side of independent journalism, trying to look at it from an independent perspective was really hard. And it was also very easy to become a target. So basically everyone who either spoke against the war or who tried to use a more neutral language was targeted and targeted in many ways. You know, it was massive defamation campaign, you know, you're a traitor, you're not a journalist, you're, you don't love your country, uh, you're Armenian, you're an agent, you know, th this kind of stuff. And much worse, of course. Sometime around second week of the war, I, I wrote two uh, stories, two personal reflections on the war. One story I wrote was at the very beginning, and it was called We're a Generation of War, where I really just talk about how we've been brought up in a country, both countries, I was speaking for both sides, basically fueled by this narrative of the enemy, of how much they've done to us, with very little room to talk, to have a dialogue, to reconcile. And that piece was kind of like, okay, you know, there wasn't any anything that would have otherwise triggered a hate campaign. But the second article I wrote, at that point, I was so frustrated with how the war was going. I was really frustrated by the fact that people were dying and a lot of people that I personally knew were not acknowledging that. You know, it was like, well, people have to die if we want to return territories. I couldn't understand how can you be a human rights defender or a political activist and be okay with people getting killed for the sake of what? Yes, you know, you're advocating for the return of lands, 
but then at what cost? And so the second piece was like very, I basically poured all of, all of these emotions onto paper and I was like, how can we talk about justice in a country where there is no justice? And I was referring to Azerbaijan, you know, how can we talk about freedoms in a country where there are no freedoms, where people are sent to jail, where there is no remedy, there is... And so that got republished by Armenian outlets. And then people started writing to me saying, how dare you talk about Azerbaijani problems or internal problems at a time like this? This is not correct. You should keep it to yourself. It's not the place nor the time. And this was coming from the people that I was also friends with. You know, for many years, I've worked with these people. We've collaborated on projects. And... Then I did an interview with a Turkish outlet and the person who was also interviewed on the same program was a journalist from Armenia. And the topic of that interview was conflict-sensitive journalism, peace journalism. Then the conversation moved to the topic of whether Turkey was sending foreign fighters to assist Azerbaijani troops. And this was very profusely rejected by both the Turkish government and Azerbaijani government. Arzu didn't comment on whether media reports about this were true, but she did say... The fact that this is being reported by so many outlets is not a good sign for Azerbaijan's image because the country has always boasted about its military strength. And so people started attacking me for that. They started posting some crappy stuff about me, about my family. Social media went crazy. I had to deactivate my Facebook. I had to deactivate my Instagram account. I locked my Twitter account, which I've never done. Like in 11 years of my journalism career, I've never done it. Online harassment, it was online sexual harassment. There were threats, there were death threats. And it was just difficult times, I guess. Arzu's back on social media now, and she says she still believes reconciliation is possible. But it's a hard sell in an atmosphere ripe with censorship and disinformation. I mean, the historical narratives that we are brought up on are very much one-sided. And it really helps to feed this misinformation machine, propaganda machine that only builds more hate, more mistrust, more acceptance of the other as an enemy rather than as someone who may not want war, may want peace. We need to look into the history to analyze and be open to even sharing what the other side has or has written or has said because it's a grievance. You are addressing something that's been sitting there for centuries in one instance, decades in another, and you really need to address it. You can't proceed without addressing the elephant in the room. And so I think one of the ways to move forward in the context of now post-war Armenia and Azerbaijan is for both sides, you know, if they're really talking about dialogue and they're talking about coexistence, then history narrative is one of the pillars of moving forward, especially if we want to avoid propaganda coming and biting us once again. That was Arzu Gebulah. She's an Azerbaijani journalist based in Istanbul and the founder of Azerbaijan Internet Watch. (laughs) 
You've been listening to World Affairs, produced in partnership with KQED, with funding from TPG, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and listeners like you. If you want to support the program by becoming a member or making a donation of any size, please go to worldaffairs.org donate. Today's episode was produced by Elise Manukian, Mateo Schimpf, Andrew Stelzer, and me, Teresa Katsarillas. Joanne Jennings, our executive producer, edited the program. Our technical supervisor is Jim Bennett. Our CEO is Philip Young. Before I sign off, I want to let you know that this will be my last episode as a co-host and senior producer of World Affairs. It's been quite a ride, and I'm really going to miss all of you. I'm leaving to pursue a passion of mine, reporting full-time on agriculture, labor, and climate change. You'll likely hear some of my work right here on World Affairs. In the meantime, you're in good hands with Ray, Philip, and the rest of the team. I'm Teresa Katsarillas. Thanks for listening. And that was the episode In Putin's Shadow from World Affairs. The rest of the series is available at worldaffairs.org or wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks to Ray Suarez and the team at World Affairs for letting us air this episode. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Simone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.